Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you, and we're glad that you've come to join us online. And for those of you who are online and those of you who are worshiping with us in person this morning, we're so glad to have you and uh, glad that you are here. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me once again to John's Gospel and once again to chapter 2, John chapter 2. Last week, we began a new uh, series of sermons in which we're going to move our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, examining the various signs that he has recorded for us uh, that really Jesus did, these acts that Jesus engaged in that authenticated his divine messianic ministry. They're signs that point us to the deity of Christ and also to the purpose for which he came. And we might even say it this way, that, that just as modern day signs uh, point us in general directions. We've got some new signs outside or some signs we put out there to point people to where the, where, where the sanctuary is and to where the education building is and where the fellowship building is. Just as signs typically point us in a direction and point us towards something that we want to go to, the signs that John records for us really point us to Jesus. And they point us to the reason for why he came. So they, they reveal the person of Jesus Christ to us. Now, the majority of the signs that, that John tells us about are miracles that Jesus performed. In fact, the first one that we studied last week in the first half of John chapter 2 was, was just such a sign. We read there about how Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. But not every sign that John records is a miracle. Uh, in fact, the passage that we're going to look at today makes that clear as we as we turn to the second half of John chapter 2, what we see is that Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem and he clears it of all of those who were there selling animals for sacrifice and who were exchanging money for a profit. And in doing so, Jesus clearly provided a sign. He, he provided a sign that pointed to his identity and to his purpose for coming. Now, I debated exactly on how long to spend on this, uh, on this par, uh, part of things, but I, I knew that it would come up in discussion and, and people would wonder, well, why didn't you talk about it? So I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. And we'll, we'll, that way you'll know. Uh, John chapter 2 has been really uh, the focal point of much critical attention in biblical scholarship because John presents the cleansing of the temple as an event that happened very early in Jesus's ministry. It happened just shortly after he had turned the water into wine at Cana. So it happened uh, very early on in his earthly ministry. In the Synoptic Gospels, however, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus cleanses the temple there, but it's presented at the end of his three-year earthly ministry. It happened at Passover, and it happened right about the last week of his life. So who got it right? Was it John or was it Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Well, I would just say that embedded in that question itself is an inherent bias. There's a bias in that question that assumes that an event like clearing the temple there in Jerusalem could only happen once. My question is why? Why did it only have to happen one time? In fact, let me ask all of you who are parents, those of you who've raised children, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever had to correct or discipline your child for doing the same thing more than once? 
Let me rephrase the question. Have you ever had to be corrected or disciplined for doing the same thing more than once? Yeah, that's me. Uh, you know, let, let's don't even stop with two. So if that's the case, then I question, then why did Jesus only have to, why was he only having to cleanse the temple just one time? And as a matter of fact, R.C. Sproul in his commentary on this passage says that after Jesus cleansed the temple, how long do you think it was before those tables were upright once more and money changers were back in business? He says, can we safely assume that when Jesus cleansed the temple on this occasion, that that was the end of the problem? I don't think so, he writes. I believe it is perfectly consistent to conclude that when Jesus came to Jerusalem for the Passover right before his death, and when he saw the same things going on that he'd condemned three years earlier, that he took action to cleanse the temple again. So that's really all the time that I want to spend on that issue. I join with many others in in biblical scholarship who believe that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. He did it once at the beginning of his earthly ministry. He did it once at the end of his earthly ministry. And consequently, the one time that he did it at the beginning that John records for us here is a unique event to John's gospel, but it nevertheless has many similarities with what occurred at the end, according to what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote as well. So there is the introduction to this passage. Let's dive into it and let's kind of get our hands around it and see if we can understand and ask God to give us wisdom in helping us being able to interpret this passage. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 and read down through verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for this this time that we have to be able to gather together as your people, your children, that we can sit here in this place our Bibles in our laps in front of us, the very Word of God, and we can read this Word and we can study it. And I pray that you would help us to do that today, to appropriate the truths that are here in this text to our very lives. Help us to be introspective to the degree that we actually are able to see ourselves in this text, but more importantly, we're able to see you, our one true Savior and Lord. I pray that you would do a work of Conviction in our hearts, redemption, restoration, 
Father, that you would be given the freedom to move in and through our lives and accomplish exactly what you desire by that which you have given to us. I thank you for this time. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters, my friends, my family who are here. And I just pray your blessings would be upon us this morning in Christ's holy name. Amen. So this passage begins by telling us that, that after leaving the town of Cana and, and performing that astounding miracle that we looked at last week of turning water into wine, that, that Jesus did what all other males who were 20 years old and older were required to do. Uh, he made his way to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Now, according to the ancient historian Josephus, it's estimated that Jesus was among as many as two and a half million people who had made their way to Jerusalem from all across Israel and, and really the surrounding lands in order to come for the same purpose. And consequently, the city itself and the area in and around the temple grounds would have been buzzing with people. People who had come to offer sacrifices on the temple altar as well as pay the temple tax that was required of them. Now that just sort of gives us the setting of this second sign that John records for us in his gospel account. And then to just sort of help us with the flow of the text and in order and I believe also to drive us to the understanding of this sign and what it reveals to us about Jesus I've organized my thoughts around five words, five hooks this morning that I believe will help us in that endeavor. And the first one is just simply this. It's the word exploitation. Exploitation. You see, upon his arrival at the temple in the holy city, what Jesus found was that there were these folks there selling oxen and, and, and sheep and doves and money changers doing business there inside the temple grounds. And the first question that we might ask is, why was, they, why was that happening? What was going on that, that brought that to pass? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Passover was a pilgrimage feast. In other words, people came from all over to Jerusalem, to the temple there to sacrifice there. And that meant that, that men were required to come and, and bring offerings that, that for, for live animals that would be sacrificed uh, for their sins. And for those who came from far away, it really, think about it, it really wasn't feasible for them to bring their own animals, to bring their own oxen or their own sheep or their own goat. There, there was no way for them to bring their own animals there because those animals that were offered on the altar had to be perfect specimens. In fact, the temple even had inspectors who were there. It was their responsibility to inspect those animals to make sure that they were the, the choicest of specimens to be offered for their sins. They would look, and they, you, you couldn't have a lame animal that you brought. It couldn't be scrawny. It, it couldn't be in, in some way uh, um, uh, unhealthy. And just think about it. If you were coming from a long distance away, even from the Galilean area, if you were to have to, to take a sheep and drive a sheep that far, you can imagine all that could happen to it along the way. Therefore, for those Jews who traveled from great distances and, and also very likely for those who did not, well, they would just come to the temple and they would purchase one of the oxen or the sheep or the doves from what we might call an approved vendor's list. Some of you know what an approved vendor list is. These were the vendors who had been allowed by the high priest to set up shop 
in the outer court of the temple, in what was known as the court of the Gentiles. And in return for such prime real estate, and in return for really such a monopoly on the ability to to sell and hawk their wares there, these vendors, these salesmen, would provide a kickback to the high priest, while at the same time charging a healthy convenience fee, we might say, to those who were traveling from farther distances away. It's not unholy, not, not completely different from, maybe you've experienced this, you've gone through a security checkpoint, and the bottle of water that costs you a dollar down the street, you can't take with you past that checkpoint. Once you get through that checkpoint, you can buy that same bottle of, dollar for, bottle of water for four bucks. Just a convenience fee. Well, perhaps that is some of what was happening here. Um, not the least of which is that the high priest was getting his pockets lined at the same time. Furthermore, as I mentioned, those who came to the temple had to pay their temple tax that was due for them to pay every year. But there again, the temple authorities were very particular about what kind of coinage they would take. It had to be minted of the purest silver. And at this particular point in Jewish history, there were all kinds of coins that were being used by all kinds of people. So just conveniently, they happened to have folks who were set up there in the temple courts who would take that foreign currency and convert it into the proper coins that could be used to pay the temple tax for a fee, of course. Now, I should point out that both the selling of animals and the changing of money, those were legitimate businesses. Uh, They were considered services that, that were valuable to people. You just imagine if you lived in the northern part of Israel and you made your way to Jerusalem to do these exact things, what a convenience it really would be for you to have someone there who would sell you the animal that you could use to, to, to make your, your offering of, on the altar and that you could get the right coin that you needed. It, it truly was a, a, a business that was not looked down upon so much I would say Jesus' problem with these activities weren't so much with the activities. It was where the activities were occurring. You see, there's evidence that indicates that these merchants and these money changers had previously operated outside the walls of the city, out on the Mount of Olives, and that they had been overseen by the the group of Sanhedrin. Those were the ones who who typically uh, kind of took care of all of that and had jurisdiction over it. But just prior to Jesus' ministry, Caiaphas, the high priest, had brought some of them into the court of the Gentiles to compete with those outside and to be able to make a profit for himself. And consequently, I believe that it is important we recognize that Jesus' indignation that he shows on this event is not so much against selling the animals and changing the money, though I think he would be opposed to shaking people down and gouging them as it was probably happening. But really, what Jesus became incensed by was the fact that these merchants had been brought into the place where the worship of God was supposed to be happening. Undoubtedly, the people were being extorted and they were being exploited by the unscrupulous merchants and the Jewish high priest, but it was the fact that the temple grounds themselves were being exploited for profit that caused Jesus' anger. The outer court there, as I've referred to it, the court of the Gentiles, 
was named that way because that was the only place that Gentiles like us could go. That was as close as we could get to the Holy of Holies. It was the closest that we could go on that temple site. But when Jesus arrived there, rather than seeing men with their hands raised in worship, rather than hearing the the voices offering prayers to the one true God, what he saw was all of the, the, the commotion of selling animals. And what he heard was merchants hawking their wares to anybody and everybody who would come along. As one commentator put it, the court of the Gentiles had been transformed from a place of worship and a prayer to a place of commerce. And this angered him. It angered him because it was a blatant display of disrespect, not only for the Gentiles, who were ultimately part of God's unfolding plan, but even more so, it was a display of blatant disrespect for God himself. Consequently, when he came there and he saw that things were being exploited and used for something other than that which had been consecrated, Jesus fashioned a whip and he took action. And he began driving out the animals out of the area and clearing all of those from doing business. And he tells them, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So we've seen the exploitation. That leads me to the next book that I want to note there on your outline. It's this. It's the word restoration. Restoration. Jesus cleaned out his father's house by force. And the merchants, well, they had brought disgrace and indignity to the father's house. So Jesus responded by throwing them all out of the temple. And in doing so, he restored order. He restored solemnity. He restored access to the father's house. And I would imagine it was a scene of incredible chaos, one that was quite unexpected. Verse 17 gives us a hint as to why Jesus did what he did. John writes, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Um, Now that quotation comes from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is not technically considered to be a messianic psalm. Nevertheless, here the 69th psalm is recalled later by Jesus' own disciples because in it, David declares his, his passion for the word of God and his passion for the house of God. And so his disciples see what Jesus did in the temple and they say, he, he is the greater David. He is one whose passion, whose zeal overcomes him and and, and empowers him. In fact, the word zeal means to be hot for something. And what we see is that here Jesus was hot for the house of God. He had a fire that was burning in him, a passion for the worship of of, of his father. And so he's there. and And so you can see this burning in him. And he displayed that fire for the worship of his father, and he wanted to bring back the purity of that worship that had been corrupted by the wickedness of men. And so his zeal caused Jesus to drive out the merchandisers. Notice what he didn't do. He didn't say, well, you know, excuse me, um, if you don't mind, really like it, if you could please maybe just move just a little ways out, maybe just make a little more room for, for, for that to occur. That is not how Jesus handled this. 
He put a whip of cords together, and he drove out the animals. That doesn't mean that he was beating the animals, but you know what I'm saying. He was driving them out, pushing the merchandisers out. He kicked over the money tables. And all of the, you can see all of those merchants, those guys trying to reclaim all of their, their coins and put them back in. He tells the ones who had the pigeons, look, get your cages and get those birds out of here. If we were somewhat surprised by the image of Jesus last week at the wedding in Cana, dancing and partying with those who were at that wedding, we're likely to be a little bit surprised by this Jesus here whose nostrils are flared and his eyes are darting with fire as he takes over and takes charge. Jesus intended to restore order to his father's house. I thought about that this week. Thought about it in the context of another preacher who who wrote this. Stephen Cole asked these questions. He said, what would Jesus do if he visited our church? Would he be pleased with our worship? Would he smile as he looked at our relationships? Would he approve of our heart for the lost? Would he commend our giving and the way that we use the church's funds? Would he say that our prayer life reflects our total dependence upon him? But as every good preacher does, he doesn't just leave it for the general. He makes it specific. He brings it back down to questions that we ought to ask ourselves. He says, ask yourself similar questions. Lord, is my life pleasing to you? Is my love for you genuine? Do I reflect the fruit of the Spirit in my daily life and walk? Is my thought life pure in your sight? And then this question really I would imagine would be the general overview question that would hit all of us. Lord, where would you clean house in my life if I gave you full reign? Those are some heavy-duty questions. They are heavy-duty questions that every single one of us in this room need to ask ourselves individually and collectively because I do believe that the Lord is asking those questions of us. They were not, however, the questions that the Jews were asking. Often, they're not the questions that you and I are asking ourselves either. We've noted the exploitation. We've witnessed the restoration. Then we come to the third hook, and that's the word authorization. Authorization. The Jewish leaders were clearly offended by what Jesus did. And they come to him in verse 18 and they ask, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? In other words, just who do you think you are to come in here and make demands like that of us? Have you ever asked the same question? I like how D.A. Carson has put it. He says, indeed, if the authorities, the Jewish authorities had had eyes to see, 
The cleansing of, its, of the temple itself was a sign. It was a sign that they should have thought about and deciphered in terms of Old Testament Scripture. You see, none of this really should have been that surprising. Just one passage I'll provide for you in Malachi chapter 3. There the prophet says this, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And what's he going to do when he gets there? Well, Malachi goes on to say, He is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. He will purge them as gold and silver. That they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Instead of considering the validity of what Jesus did when he came in and cleared the temple... These religious leaders demanded to know what credentials he had. Carson goes on to write this. He says, they display no reflection or self-examination over whether Jesus' cleansing of the temple was foundationally just. They simply show that they are less concerned with pure worship and right approach to God than they are with questions of precedent and authority. In fact, their their request of Jesus to give them another sign to prove what authority he had was really a smack in his face. Effectively, it was like, why should we listen to you? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right to come in and declare something unworthy that we have said is okay to occur? Who do you think you are? We've seen the exploitation. We've seen Jesus' restoration, the Jewish leader's request for authorization Now notice that Jesus responded to their request with a spiritual riddle. And it's a riddle that that neither the Jewish leaders nor his own disciples seemed to understand initially. The next word is the word incomprehension. Incomprehension. Jesus says, you want a sign? Okay, I got a sign for you. Here it is. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now I would just kind of love to have been there and seen those Jewish leaders' response to that. I would have loved to have seen their faces. I can only imagine that they just sort of dropped their hands and their mouth sort of went open. And they looked at one another and said, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Destroy this temple. And three days... They started building this temple 46 years ago, man. You're going to do in three days what thousands of men over the course of nearly five decades have not been able to even complete? You're going to do it in three days? Who is this guy? Incomprehension. The inability to understand what Jesus was saying. The inability to to take the the truth that he was speaking to them and apply it appropriately to their hearts. Now, I want you to know this is just the first of a number of times that this happens in John's gospel. In fact, this is the first of of three chapters in which you see it successfully happening. For example, in John chapter 3, Jesus comes across a man named Nicodemus. He is, a, he is a Pharisee. He's a ruler over the Jews. And Jesus tells him, look, if you ever want to see the kingdom of God, you're going to have to be born again. Jesus is speaking spiritually to him. Nicodemus has no category for that. So he asks Jesus in return, 
how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? What a ridiculous question. What a ridiculous statement that you make, Jesus. But you see, Nicodemus is not understanding things from the spiritual nature. He's only looking at them physically. It happens again in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a woman, a Samaritan woman, who's going during the middle of the hot day to draw water from a well. And that then in and of itself tells us a lot about this woman. But what's really important is that Jesus' disciples have all departed to go buy him some food and for them all to share together. Jesus is resting near this well. This woman comes to draw water and he says, would you give me a drink? She is flabbergasted. She's a Samaritan. Jews didn't even speak to Samaritans. And she can't believe that Jesus would want a drink of water from her. Jesus responds to her and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to her, said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You see, she's thinking physically. Jesus is speaking spiritually. She has no category for being able to understand that. That's the incomprehension that I'm talking about. And it happens right here on the temple grounds. When Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again, and they're looking at these huge stones that one man, two men, a hundred men couldn't move on their best day. And they're trying to figure out how in the world could this temple ever be destroyed and you be able to rebuild it yourself in three days. Listen, I want you to know, that's often how the truth of God comes. It comes to us and it just doesn't seem to make sense. That is why the Holy Spirit has to help us. And that brings me to the fourth hook and the fifth word, excuse me, the fifth hook and the fifth word. It's the word interpretation. Interpretation. Let me point you back to our text here in chapter 2. Because you see, from the perspective of these Jewish authorities, they want this sign of Jesus' authority to come in and disrupt things inside the temple courts. The fact that he had done what he he did should have been sign enough, but it wasn't. So Jesus acquiesced to their demands, and he gave them an additional sign that says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And All they could think about was just how crazy that sounded. It borderlined on blasphemy and lunacy. They could only think in physical terms and only in terms of the physical temple. John, however, makes sure that we do not make the same mistake. And he does it by telling us specifically what Jesus meant. Verses 21 and 22. But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You remember when we looked at this last week, the signs that Jesus performed, a response was necessary. And the response is always belief. When he does what he does, the necessary natural response is to believe upon him. That's exactly what we see occur here. What I want you to know is that this insertion by John there is very important because it allows us to properly interpret Jesus' words 
and the sign that he offered. I'm just going to offer some things for you. You need to go back and chase some of this for yourself. But the first thing that I want you to note here is that when Jesus spoke of the temple being destroyed, he was actually speaking about the temple of his body. And consequently, what he was doing was identifying himself as the new and true temple. In other words, though the Jews didn't understand it at the time, Jesus was declaring that he superseded the temple made with stones. And what that meant was that he was closing the old covenant and bringing dawn to the new messianic kingdom. But we also recognize from his words that Jesus would would have to sacrifice the temple of his own body so that he could systematically build his church. Jesus, therefore, was pointing to the fact that he, the temple of God in the midst of his people, would be torn down. The temple that, that of his own body would be destroyed. And ultimately, we know that's exactly what happened. The Jewish leaders, with the help of the Romans, destroyed Christ's fleshly temple when they crucified him on Calvary's cross. But in the words... In his words to the Jewish authorities, Jesus let them know that that was not going to be in the story. Three days after that, as we know, according to the scriptures, Jesus rose from the dead. He, his temple was rebuilt, as it were. And then, as one author has noted, after raising his body, Jesus would begin the unparalleled temple-building project of extending the boundaries of his body to the entire church. But there's still more that I think that that this entire thing that should cause us to chew on. You see, when, when Jesus speaks about this temple being destroyed and then rebuilt in three days, John writes that, and he writes it to people. Most scholars believe that the Gospel of John was written in the last quarter of the first century. Somewhere after 75 A.D., many push it back as far as 80 to 85 A.D. That would mean that when John wrote what he did, it occurred after the physical destruction of the temple that occurred by the Romans in 70 A.D. So when John writes what he writes, the people who read it are reading it with the knowledge that the temple that Jesus cleared was already torn down. And so when Jesus says, tear this temple down in three days, I'll raise it up. Obviously, it was not the physical temple. Jesus was pointing to himself and saying, you have no reason to mourn over a destructed temple because I, your temple, am here and I am the one that you are to worship. In fact, I mentioned the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You remember that they had this little interchange between them. And she said, look, our fathers worshiped on this mountain here in Samaria. And you Jews say that you're to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Where are we supposed to really worship? And you remember what Jesus said to her? He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What all of that means is that Jesus was bringing an end to the day of having to sacrifice sheep and oxen and doves on the altar repeatedly over 
and over again. He was bringing it to an end because he would become the pure, perfect sacrifice who would die on the altar to satisfy God's wrath against sin, against my sin and against your sin. So when we consider everything that has been written in this passage, we see that Jesus sought to make the house of God a place of worship rather than a place of buying and selling merchandise. And his holy, hot passion for the worship of his father came out. And in the process of that, he pointed to the fact that such a passion would ultimately cause him to suffer great anguish, resulting in him being sacrificed on the cross. But death could not defeat him and the grave could not hold him. And he would rise victorious, defeating all of his enemies. And the true temple of God would prevail, ultimately providing you and I with the only hope that we have for salvation. And in that regard, I would simply say that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the supreme sign. By raising Christ from the grave, God established his church and therefore Christ's temple and all people everywhere are commanded to come and worship him. And that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence. Because he purchased our freedom through his sacrificial death and resurrection, we must believe in Jesus and worship him in spirit and in truth. Here is my question for you today. Is that your testimony? Have you given yourself completely to him? Do you worship him in spirit and truth? Or do you look at the sign that he provides and remain unconvinced? May I simply say to you this morning that if the sign of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection does not lead you to faith, the fault lies not with the sign, but rather with the one who refuses to believe it. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I want you to know the act of cleansing the temple, which ultimately pointed to Christ's death and resurrection, demands, just as it did in that day, it demands in our day that people respond. They respond by faith. Will you do that? Will you humble yourself before him? Will you confess your sin and ask him to save you? from the guilt and the penalty of those sins. That is what genuine faith demands. It demands that you trust in Christ to do for you that which you could not do for yourself. Will you do that today? If you tell me and you say, yes, pastor, I've done that. I've trusted in Jesus. He is my Lord and my Savior. Then I want you to know, if you have been saved, then this sign that we have witnessed together today calls you to behold the glory of Christ and to recall the sacrifice that he made for you. It requires you to surrender your body as a living sacrifice to God, and then as the scripture says, you are to render yourselves, your life, as a holy and acceptable service to him. And that is what gives him the authority to come into your life and put his finger in the middle of some areas that may or may not be so comfortable for you to have him do. 
It's what allows him to come with the passion that he has to clear house in your own personal life, to bring to your attention areas where you have not turned completely over to him, areas of your life that you're clutching and keeping from him because you don't really want him there. And in actuality, when you refuse to allow him to do what it is he desires, you are in effect saying, who do you think you are and what authority do you have to come in and mess with my life? But if you are a blood-bought child of God, then understand that the Holy Spirit has the freedom and the authority to come in and call you to repentance. And the question should not be who you think you are. The question should be, Lord, what would you do with me? How would you change me? How would you conform me into the image of your son and make me wholly new? Brothers and sisters, if we if we claim this power and we claim that Christ is our Savior and if He is our Lord, then we must give ourselves to Him and allow Him to do in our hearts that which He would desire to do. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank You for Your Word and I thank You for the cleansing power of it your blood that was shed for us. You call men, women, boys and girls everywhere to repentance and to faith in you. And you have a zeal and a passion for us to live our lives in such a way that we bring glory to you. So this is my prayer in these quiet moments as we just spend some time reflecting, singing about the amazing grace that you've given to us that we would also at this time just make it a priority that we give ourselves over to you and to your cleansing work. So allow your spirit to work in our lives to bring about faith and repentance and obedience. This is my prayer and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.